You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 58. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break up and a time to a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone shall eat and drink and take pleasure in all, that, in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us by your word. We thank you that Solomon saw things. Saw things and understood things. And you called him to write these things down for us. Lord, I pray that we would hear these words and trust these words in an ironic and strange way that these words today would be um, a bedrock of comfort, a, a, a rock of um, a rock that, that becomes the soil out of which real joy and faithfulness and righteousness can grow for us in this world. In your name we pray, amen. It would be excusable if over the last couple of weeks you would have forgotten something. Um, forgetting that this book, this entire book, Ecclesiastes, is written fundamentally as a celebration of joy. Instruction manual in joy. In all of its talk of vaporousness, of the uselessness of attempting to shepherd the wind, um, you might have left here, maybe, um, a a little bit despairing. Um, If you look at, hey, all of my pursuit of happiness, vapor. If you look at last week, all of my pursuit of meaning, Something lasting in my work, in my vocation. Vapor. <laughs> if I look at my pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Vapor. If you were to see that, as you hopefully did see, and if you didn't, there it all is for you. Um, over the last few weeks, you, you would be excused if you're arriving now at chapter 3, um, having heard us talking about where we're going with Ecclesiastes and saying, Brian, I think you're a liar. This isn't about joy. You want us to despair all summer, make it sad, sad summer, <laughs> Trinity. I want to remind you that the point of all of this book is to lead us um, to, to a, a, a turn, a, a conviction that's actually going to occur several times on the way out and is going to occur for us here, which is to say... Um, that the, the, the goal of this book is this. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, and to be good as long as they live. That's Solomon's goal. That's where he intends to take us with this argument. But to get us there, he has to disrupt kind of our normal way of going about answering the questions um, that, that, and that those answers actually undermine our ability um, to enjoy what God has given us and to live wisely and skillfully in the world that God's put us in. There is, at the heart of this book, two fundamental questions that he is attempting to answer. And the first two chapters were about where we don't find the answer to those two questions. Those two questions are fundamentally this. These two questions are the questions that are guiding and directing almost every cultural thing you can imagine throughout all of history. In other words, there's not really two more important questions to consider, and how you answer those questions really determines almost everything about your life. That's, how's that for a claim 
on a Sunday morning in June. Don't worry, it's not July, it's not too hot. We can deal with these questions now. In July, we'll just simplify things a bit. But here's the two questions. Where do I find meaning? Meaning that lasts, that's fixed. And two, how do I then, given that meaning, find joy? And historically, there are only two ways to answer those questions. Now, now the two different ways of answering that question have looked marvelously diverse. But every person, every society, every culture has ultimately answered those questions in only one of two ways. And it seems to me, particularly in this month, this month of June, in a city like Denver, that we have a marvelous illustration of the wrong way to answer that question. One way of answering that question is that meaning is to be found in whatever I make it. I make my own meaning. I build my own life. I invest whatever I want to invest in my life. My life is mine. Quote Eddie Vedder again. I am mine. And therefore, joy will be found wherever I decide to seek it. That's one way of answering that question. And that is the fundamental and vain celebrations of Pride Month. Pride Month, in the end, is not ultimately about sexuality. Sexuality just happens to be one application of what Pride Month is ultimately about in our culture. Pride Month at its root is about I am mine. I make my own meaning. I am who I decide to be. I am whatever I feel like I want to be. And throughout history, not, not just 21st century America, but throughout history, that same chant, that same defiance against the nature of the universe has always been shouted and sung and celebrated and attempted. And it's all been vapor. The other way to answer that question is to say meaning is a gift. It's received. It comes from somewhere else. And therefore, joy is a gift. It's to be received. It's from somewhere else. And those are your two options. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you decided to come here on this particular Sunday, what a happy providence. Here's your options. Let me simplify everything for you. 
you can attempt to say meaning is whatever I decide it is. I am whatever I say I am. The meaning of my work, the meaning of my relationships, the meaning of my sexuality, the meaning of my body, the meaning of my money is whatever I decide it should be. Therefore, I will pursue joy however I see fit. The first two chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks at that, that attempt. I think Solomon, I don't know you yet, so sorry, I think he's smarter than you. Really smart guy. Bible says he was like smartest ever. World's smartest guy. His assessment of your attempt and my attempt to live out a life like that is futility, vanity, sadness, pitiable. That will lead to nothing. This week he's going to turn and re-describe the world or the foundations of the world And it represents a massive turn for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the second section of Solomon's argument begins here in chapter 3, verse 1, and will continue to the end of chapter 5. And the way that you know something new is going on is the first two chapters, there was no mention of God. What was Solomon looking at? He was looking at himself. He was looking at his own life. He was looking at mankind. And how they live under the sun. And now in chapter 3, the focus is not on you and I and the activities of men. The focus is on another actor. Someone beyond the sun. Someone, as we're going to be able to see here right at the beginning of chapter 3, who does shepherd the wind. So, let's look at his argument, having taken note of this transition and knowing that we're looking for another subject to the sentence in chapter 3. You have a poem made famous by the birds. Not a good song. Starting in verse 2, going through verse 8, what is this poem? This poem, you've got 14 pairs of opposites. So you have birth and death You have planting and plucking. You have killing and healing. You have breaking down and building up. You have weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing. You have casting away stones. You have gathering stones together. You have a time to embrace and then to refrain from embracing. It's important to know when it's appropriate, when the time is to embrace and when it's not to embrace. If you embrace the wrong time, It will be awkward. Seeking, losing, keeping, throwing away, tearing, sowing, being quiet, speaking, loving, hating, warring, and peacing. So you have 14 pairs, and there is no discernible order. To the pairs. I can tell you after looking at a whole slew of commentaries, 
the grand and sweeping and insightful conclusion is there is no order to this. They're just there. On purpose, there is no discernible order to it. Because this is how life goes, right? It doesn't come in the order that you set out to plan it in. You don't kind of order your life and say, I'm going to be born, and then I'm going to plant some stuff. And then I'm going to pluck up, then I'm going to kill. Like you, you don't, there's, there's no progression here. And what you find is we are in a world, living in a world, and largely responding to the times and the seasons that we're placed in. And the other thing I want to point out to you about this text is this isn't what we would have traditionally called kind of spiritual categories. Um, there have been uh, a number of preachers in history that have tried to take this list and spiritualize it so it all goes down deep in your heart. None of this goes down deep in your heart. This is about everything that is, like killing. Killing there means real killing, not like killing your sin or something. Planting means like you go in your garden and you plant stuff, not planting the Word of God deep down in your heart. This is about the stuff of life. He's talking about not some sort of spiritual realm. He's not talking about... Um, some sort of religious categories. He is talking about your life tomorrow. Tomorrow for someone will be a day to be born. And for someone it will be a day to die. It will be a time to plant. Although, let's say you're late right now. And if you're plucking up what is planted, it's hopefully a weed. Or a dandelion, not a daffodil. For someone, it will be a time to kill, a time to heal. In other words, this is what Solomon is describing is not um, kind of an escape. Like the, the answer he's providing for us in the face of all this vaporousness, all this attempt to make meaning in a society that is um, uh, rampantly chasing its own joy elsewhere, its own meaning elsewhere. And in, in the face of him pointing all that and saying the vapor that's all vapor. Now the answer is go withdraw into kind of a quiet place in your heart and there you will find meaning. That's not what he's arguing. He's not allowing us to disengage from economic life, from home life, from real relationships, from politics, from drinking coffee, from swinging a sword. He's not pulling us out of that to say real meaning and, and, and non-vaporousness is going to be found over here in this secret, quiet place. No, it's still here. In the pulling up of weeds. In the being born and the dying. In the building stuff and breaking down stuff. So all of his application is one, it's in the midst of what appears to be random, and it's in the midst of things that have everything to do with just everyday normal life. 
So his answer is not to escape. And his answer is not to find some secret order to these things in your life. By the way, I can see throughout the room people who have seen it as a personal challenge when I said there is no discernible order in this list. If you're still looking, trying to find the discernible order, Godspeed. So, it's vanity and vapor, what you're doing. So, what do we make of this list given those observations? Most obvious thing in the world about this list is this. There is a season and a time There is defined by someone other than you (laughs) a time and a season. Begins each line with the same phrase a time to be born in ESV, or a season to be born, a season to die, a season to plant, a season to pluck up what is planted. In other words, there is a randomness to this list, but randomness is not the only thing to see in this list. Seasons are appointed. They're directed. They're given. Martin Luther says it this way, all human works and efforts have a certain and definite time of acting, of beginning, and of ending beyond human control. Everything comes and goes at the time God has appointed. He proves this um, on the basis of examples of human works whose times lie outside the choice of man. For this he draws the conclusion that it is useless for men to be tormented by their strivings and um, and that they do not accomplish anything, even though they were to burst. Unless the proven time and the hour appointed by God has come, So the power of God comprehends all things in definite hours so that they cannot be hindered by anyone. What is this poem about? It is meant to be a contrast with the last two chapters. The last two chapters are you can't control anything. Vapor and wind. Contrast is God appoints Everything. Now let's go one layer deeper before we move on to the rest of this chapter. Because I want it to sting a little bit because it it needs to sting a little bit. And, And the reason it needs to sting a little bit is you haven't seen the significance of God appointed seasons or times unless you feel a kind of impulse to resist this doctrine. It's been resisted for centuries. Let me go ahead and make it sting 
I'll just make the, the unspoken part clear. There is, God has given a time to mourn and a time to dance. God has given a time to weep and a time to laugh. God has given a time to love and a time to hate. God has given a time for war and a time for peace. Sting yet. It's far too easy for us to chalk up the good times and say, God has given me good times. And then to look at the hard times, the difficult times, either for you personally or for a society. To say God had nothing to do with that. That's not what Solomon, or frankly the rest of the Bible, will say. Your times of weeping are from God. Your times of laughter are from God. Your times of peace are from God. Times for war are from God. And this doctrine, as hard as it is, is the only sure foundation for meaning or for joy. So, as you look at that doctrine, right now you're playing with it, mentally maybe, What do I want to do with this? Throw it out. Forget about it. Brian got too excited this morning. Let me go eat Chipotle and go home and take a nap. Or, man, I want to think about this, embrace this, understand it. I'm not saying this is an ancillary doctrine to the rest of life. I'm saying you can't make sense of anything apart from this doctrine. This isn't a secondary doctrine. This isn't a tertiary one, which we can all just kind of get along. Um, This is foundational for meaning and for joy. God is sovereign. Um, Let's do a little bit more to see how he expands on this. Look down at verse 14. Again, the the, the idea in the flow of the argument in Ecclesiastes is he's drawing a contrast. Everything you do is vapor. Everything God does is certain. (laughs) Verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. 
That's the central idea in all of Ecclesiastes. If you came for one Sunday, the whole summer, this was it. Everything else hinges here. Everything before now has been to say, we're not like God. Now, chapter 3, and here's what God is like. And here, given the vaporousness of everything Solomon laid out for us in the first two chapters, here is something solid. Here is something that doesn't go away. Here's something that can't be stopped. Here's something that doesn't disappear in your hands as soon as you take hold of it. Here is something solid. And therefore, here is something we can build real meaning on. And here is something we can build real joy on. Sex, wine, wealth, massive building projects... An incredible career, what you think are meaningful relationships, vapor if you put them in the wrong spot. But here, here is where something real can get built. He goes on to expand this contrast in verses 15 to 17. I want us to look at it because he's gonna, we're going to get deeper into what he explains in these three verses as we keep going in Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 15. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, this by the way is government language. The language of courtrooms, House, Senate, Congress, President's language. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, this is covenant language, this is religious language, this is worship language, church language. And in the place of righteousness... Even there was wickedness. Now why does he choose government language, political language, and religious language? Because he looks out at the whole of human society and he says, here's two places where you would think meaningful life can be found. If anybody's doing anything that has real value, it's either right down the street at that building, or perhaps in this building. What he says is, I looked at both of them, and in both of them, I found wickedness. In both of them, even in these places, these places where you think, here's something fixed, here's something meaningful, here's something that lasts. He says, even there, I found vapor. I found corruption. I found injustice. And then he tells us why. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. 
There's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them or teaching them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Why does God permit, even ordain, that there would be wickedness at the state house? To teach us that we are but mere men. But why does, a God, why does God allow that there would be wickedness even in those who call themselves the church to teach us that we are but men? In the end, there is only one solid, unshakable, non-vaporous thing in the universe. God. And therefore, God's actions. So, how then should we live in a world sovereignly guided by God such that our experience of it is always vapor, is always an attempt to shepherd the wind? Luckily, Solomon gives us a three-point application. You ready? First point, verses 12 through 14. Um, By the way, you can find these three points uh, in the ESV. It's translated, I perceived. Um, He perceives three things. Uh, The the language there is know, um, see, I'm certain of. Which is really, really satisfying given the nature of Solomon's argument in this book, right? Because what he tells you for chapters is what he doesn't know. (laughs) And now, right here in the middle of chapter 3, he says, I saw, I perceived, I'm certain of three things. So I'm going to give you three things today. The last two weeks we've talked about, I've given you nothing to hold on to. (laughs) In fact, I've just smashed your fingers. You try to grab hold of something, just take a hammer, bam, nope. This week, here's three things I promise not to swing a hammer at your hand, you can grab them. Ready? Number one. Verse 12, I perceived, I saw, I knew, I'm certain that there is nothing better for them to do. Nothing better for them. Sorry, I jumped a line. I perceive that there is nothing better for them, us, all of us, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So first, be filled with joy and do righteousness. Do good. He's going to explain that and spell that out later in the book. Do what God says to do. Not because you can control outcomes, not because you can fix society, and not because you can even like determine the outcome of how your children turn out. Solomon's not doing, hey, do this because this is the way you shepherd the wind. He's saying, no, the wind, like shepherding outcomes is wind. So given that, what do you do? You should do good and find joy in all the good that you're doing. In other words, pursue righteousness. Do what God commands you to do. Live in the way that God has commanded you 
to live. Not because there's some sort of lockstep, if you do or some math equation in life, and that's how we shepherd the wind. If we do A, B, and C, we get outcome D. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, no, the very best thing I can give you right now is you should go out from here and whatever you have for lunch, if you make a little sandwich or if you get some food, really good food, whatever it is, enjoy, enjoy everything God puts in front of you right here. Just do righteousness today. Live according to God's law. Live according to the way God has commanded us to live. So that's the first thing you can hold on to. Number two. Also, verse 13. That everyone, I love this verse. Everyone should eat. Love that. And drink. Even better. And take pleasure in all his toil or labor. This is God's gift to man. His gift to you is not you can build a lasting legacy so your great-grandchildren remember who you are. (laughs) His gift to you is not you can build a society that pursues justice and righteousness and goodness forever. His gift to you is eat. Drink. Whatever work God's given you to do tomorrow, enjoy it. Didn't add anything on the end there, I don't know if you noticed. Like, so that you will... No, I just said, tomorrow, hopefully you will eat some food, unless you're fasting, or just one of the weird people who don't eat food, drinks protein drinks all day or something. We'll eat food. Solomon says, you should enjoy that. It's a gift from God. You got to eat that burrito tomorrow. Gift. Rejoice. Tonight, I will have an old-fashioned. It's like clockwork every Sunday night. Rejoice. God gave it to you. It's a gift. Tomorrow, some of you will count beans. There's accountants in this room. I don't know how, but rejoice! This is the work that God has given you to do. Some of you will build stuff. Rejoice! Some of you will chase down bad guys. Rejoice! Some of you will sit in counseling sessions. Rejoice! Some of you will lawyer and try to sue people or whatever. Rejoice! Like, this is what Solomon says. Like, enjoy what's right in front of you. Take hold of it. Receive it as a gift. And then third, the third thing he perceives. Know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing will thwart his purposes. Nothing can change his purposes. As it says in verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God will make everything beautiful in its time. The text tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. There is this terrible tension we live in in this world. But we want to know, we even want to be able to determine the end from the beginning our lives, 
history, of society, of our city, of our business, of our kids' lives, whatever the thing is, there's this constant desire, yearning, longing. Um, can I control how this thing goes? So that I can have meaning and joy in determining how this thing goes. Solomon says all of that is vapor. The only thing that's not vapor is an absolute certainty that no matter what it looks like, what it feels like, how crazy next weekend will be downtown in this city, no matter what kind of chaos comes into your life, here's something certain, kind of the place you should rest your feet It's his third point. Whatever God sets out to do, he will do. And our only clue as to what he's going to do is that all of it will be beautiful in its time. Now, you may not get to see that beauty right now. Just feels like vapor and wind and chaos and a time of mourning or a time of weeping or a time of war making. Or a time of hating. The promise of God is that He cannot be stopped. He can't be slowed down. He can't be thwarted. He will make everything beautiful in its time. And when you find that rock to rest your feet on, A kind of surety, hard surety, but a surety in the fact that nothing is outside of his control. That every season you are in, whether it's dark or whether it's filled with enormous, seeable, tangible blessings, whatever end of the spectrum your life happens to fall into next, um, if your feet in the midst of, of getting hit by that wave can find the rock of God has given this to me. He will make everything beautiful in its time. If you can find that rock, then in the darkest of times, in the most glorious of times, you can sit down to lunch and enjoy it and give thanks to God. You can drink that, what's the flavored water called? Chug water or something? I don't know. You can drink that flavored water or that old-fashioned or that, that, that decent IPA. Um, you can enjoy it and give thanks to God. You can go to work and count stuff or sue stuff or keep stuff from burning down. I'm just looking around the room. Um, or dig for black sludge. Whatever it is that you do, you can go into whatever that thing is and enjoy it as best you can and give thanks to God. That is the world that God has given us. It's not a world where you make your own meaning. It's not a world where you conspire to create your own joy. No, it is a world where everything, every single bit of it, is given to you by God. And His promise is that in and through all of it, He will judge the righteous and the wicked, and He will make all things Beautiful. Now, enjoy your life. Enjoy all of those gifts, those twists, those turns, those storms, those calm periods, those waves. 
All of it. Trusting in him. In him alone. Let's pray and prepare for communion.